And we ask now that you would open our hearts and our minds to, to not only read but understand a portion of the book of Romans that you have set out for us today. Uh, and I pray that you'd help me as the one teaching through this to be clear and to speak with conviction because it is truth. And I pray that your desired will would be accomplished through hearing and then doing the word of God in each of our lives. We pray this in, for the glory of our Savior. Amen. So we're in Romans 12. We'll get to that in a moment. But I want to start with a question for you this morning. And the question is, uh, on your bulletin insert really, it, it is, have you gone AWOL? Have you gone AWOL? Now that stands for something. We live in a world of, you know, letters meaning other things. So it's absent without leave. It's a military term, obviously. Have you gone absent without leave? And you may think that's a strange way to introduce a message from God's word. And you may be wondering what could possibly have to do with the Christian life or our relationship with God and the scriptures. But it does relate to our Christian life. And it does relate uh, to our understanding of scripture. Uh, and the reason it does is because whether you like it or not, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you believed the gospel, you were introduced into God's family, amen? And you were also inducted into God's army. Yeah, we're all uh, soldiers of the Lord as those who are disciples of Christ. The, the scriptures are abundantly clear that believers are in a state of spiritual warfare, that the enemy is attacking us on a regular uh, basis. The forces of darkness are against us. But one of the major problems that we have in God's army is the fact that many of the soldiers are absent without leave. Or you could even put it in the missing from action. Missing from action. So as I was considering the passage that we'll look at today, as well as the entire last major section of uh, Romans, I was struck by the fact that in several ways, this last section of the letter is, is a call to action, is a call to action on the part of believers. It lays out for us some of the many ways that a right relationship with God through faith in Christ Jesus is to change the way that we respond in the concrete situations in life, the circumstances that we face. And sadly, there are far too many believers that are not living out the will of God, verse 2, right? When we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind, we live out the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect or mature. And a lot of believers don't seem to be doing that. In fact, they are absent without leave or they're missing from action, so to speak. Now, I don't think that's anyone in this room. I'm sure that's not anyone in this room. So what we'll cover today, you can just take it and say, this will be good for my conversations with other believers. And I may be concerned about that are absent without leave. So let's read our text for today. It's Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. 3 through 8 of Romans 12. For... 
by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober or sound judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if, if service in our serving, uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So the way I kind of sum this up, and it's in your insert, uh, this paragraph is, is, here's the big idea, God's righteousness applied to faithful ministry. That's what he's talking about in this passage. God's righteousness applied to faithful ministry. Remember, we started out, the gospel is the revelation of God, is the power of God for salvation everyone believes. And we need the righteousness of God because we're condemned sinners, and, and then we learned about how we get right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and how that sets apart, us apart from sin and from the law, and God has given us the Holy Spirit to, in, in, you know, uh, give us the ability to live the life that will bring him honor and glory, and, and so we've come to this last section on application of the gospel to our life, and that's what he's talking about here in the particular area of faithful ministry. Not being absent without leave, or not being missing in action. So the big idea of this paragraph is that God's righteousness is applied through faithful service. Now, I want to set the stage, if I can, for the verses that we're, we're going to cover today, as well as for the remainder, really, of, the, of Paul's letter to the Romans, or at least this last major section. We, we Remember, we began just a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 12, where we saw that God calls believers to present themselves as a sacrifice to him, living, holy, uh, well-pleasing, for, you know, sacrifices to him. It's a, it's a decisive act of the will. When we understand the mercy of God that he has shown us in Christ, we should present ourselves. A decisive act of the will where we do that. And then that gets worked out on a day-by-day -day basis where we stop allowing the world to squeeze us into its mold, you know, not conforming to this present age, but instead being constantly transformed by the renewing of our mind in the scriptures. And if we're doing that, then we're going to be living out, proving what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and well-pleasing to God. So following that initial spiritual principle and its practices, Paul goes on to express how the will of God is seen in, in several areas of Christian living. He's not covering the whole gamut, but he's covering some, and the principles will apply to many other areas, as we will see as we go through this section. But in our passage today, again, we see that, that the will of God being lived out means that we'll be engaged in faithful ministry and service for the Lord, verses 3 through 8. And then in, in 12, 9 through 21, we'll discover 
that Paul says it will be worked out in interpersonal relationships, how you respond to one another uh, in, in life. In 13, 1 through 7, it's revealed that God's will impacts how we are to respond to governing authorities that he's placed over us, even though we may not like the authority very much. And then in verses 13, uh, 13 8 through 10, it tells us that God's will for us is to live out that one commandment that really is the sum of all the commandments, which is love one another. Love one another. And then 14, all the, uh, verse 1 all the way through 15, verse 13, long, the long section, we discover that God's will affects the way that we, uh, that believers deal with matters of disagreement when it comes to personal convictions. Personal convictions. We'll address those things when we get there. So again, our passage for today, however, shows us that a renewed mind will be evidenced by humble and wholehearted service ministry lived out in the context of community. Don't miss any of that. It is humble and wholehearted service or ministry lived out in the context of Christian community. So part of living in community necessitates a, a fair and sober estimate of ourselves that accords with the faith and the gifts that God gives each of us. And we'll see Paul do three things in these verses, three through eight. First thing that he does is he gives an exhortation. The second thing that he does is he gives an illustration of that exhortation. And then the third thing that he'll do is he gives an application to that exhortation and illustration. Got it all? Know where we're going? Oh man, it'll be a fun road to take here uh, for a little bit of time that we get to be on this road. Okay, the exhortation. Well, what is it? Well, I put it very simply, be humble. If you're filling in your insert blanks, that's what you want to put in that one. Be humble. And that's what verse 3 is. The whole verse is really the exhortation. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself, we could put herself as well, more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. A couple of initial thoughts there. When Paul says, by the grace given to me, he's not talking about the grace of the gospel, the grace of him himself coming to know Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about the grace gift of apostleship that God had given to him. The very thing he had talked about at the very beginning of this letter. So the grace of apostleship was given to him. So he's speaking with the authority of an apostle as he gives this exhortation, illustration, and application. And the second thing to note about it is that it is not written to certain individuals within the church, but to every single believer in the church. A lot of people approach this passage and they think that he's talking only to leaders in the church because it talks about teaching and prophecy and things like that. But it's very clear. He says, the grace given to me, I say to everyone, to everyone, there's a measure of faith that God has assigned. So the word humble, I don't know if you picked this up. I've, I've termed the, uh, the exhortation as be humble, but the word humble is actually not in, the, in that verse, is it? 
It's not actually written out in that verse, but it is essentially defined by Paul in this verse. It is not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think with sound judgment or sober judgment. There's actually a play of words that goes on in this word. Four times the word for thinking, which is for neo, is in its verb form. Four times that word is found. Two of the times are in compound form and the other two are, are not. So it is the uh, not to think more highly. Not to think more highly is one word. It's this word with think in it, but to think above to think high and then is but instead think this way not this way right two words think and then the last one sound judgment would be better translated as sound thinking thinking the fourth time that that word is used. so there's a whole lot of thinking going on in this exhortation and that's important to understand that this is not the emotional side that he's really addressing. This is the intellectual side. We need to know this information and then put it into practice. Now, it will affect our emotions, of course, but he's really addressing the intellectual or the, the mental side of it. Now, I would add to it, not wanting to add in any way to Scripture, but I would add to that we are not to think not only not too high of ourselves, but we shouldn't be thinking too low of ourselves as well. That's part of sound judgment as well. And we'll talk more about that in, in just a little bit. But before we proceed actually with the exhortation itself, I wanna consider a couple of things. And the first of those is that this exhortation only makes sense. It only makes sense to those who have done what's in one and two. Based on the mercy of God shown them, they have decided, made a decisive act of the will to present their lives as a sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, well-pleasing to him. And they are also not allowing the world to squeeze them into its mold, the, this present age, but instead are being consistently transformed by the renewal of their mind. Only those people that are doing that that are going to obey this exhortation. They're going to see that it is logical for them to do this in response to the mercy of God shown them. Do you notice the first word of this verse, verse 3? Three-letter word, for, F-O-R. Now, I don't know if all the English translations have it at the, as the first word, but that word is letting us know that he's connecting what he's saying in three through eight with what he said in one and two. It's a, it's a flow of thought that he has going. The general principle, one and two. All the specifics are coming in the rest of this last major section, and this is the first one. Now, the second thing about it is to understand that the call to humility is one of the highest priorities in the word of God. I mean, the early church knew this well, I think. The, in fact, the early church, Father Augustine, made this statement. When, when, a cert, when a certain rhetorician was asked what was the chief rule of eloquence, he replied, delivery. Well, what's the second rule? Delivery. Uh, what's the third rule? delivery that's right and then he went on he says so if you ask me concerning the precepts of the christian religion first second third and always i would answer humility humility 
Martin Luther wrote this, unless a man is always humble, distrustful of himself, always fears his own understanding, his passions and his will, he will be unable to stand for, for long without offense. So I want to share just a few verses, a sampling of verses that emphasize the importance of humility in the scriptures, okay? How God views it. So first one, you can just write the references down. I'm sure that Joel will probably have them up for you if you want to read. As I read them out loud, you can follow along. So Second Chronicles 7.14, verse that many Christians know. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It begins with humility. Now that was a statement to Israel in particular, but the principle applies to all of God's children, right? Be humble and seek the Lord, his face, and, and be obedient to him, and, and blessing will flow from that. Blessing of forgiveness and healing in our lives and in our church, and et cetera, et cetera. Isaiah 57, verse 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's basic meaning of humility here lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He's high and holy, lifted up above all things. He's transcendent, but he dwells with those who are humble and those who repent for sin. Now, Micah 6, 8, there's an old praise song that was made of this verse. He has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Philippians 2 and verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or, uh, or conceit, but in humility count others as more important or significant than yourselves. And then Peter wrote to elders in the context of, uh, of 1 Peter 5, 5 as context of elders, but if it applies to them, it applies to everyone in the church, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humility is such a high priority in scripture. And of course, you want the best example of it? Look to the life of Jesus, right? He did not, you know, though he is in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, you know, to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. You know, he, he came to serve, not, not to ram his authority over uh, people. Now, I think there are two common problems. There's another blank for you, Phil. And two common problems that happen when people... Uh, think about themselves. The first is that of overrating themselves, and the second is that they underrate themselves. 
So first, they, they either have too high a view of their importance to others, and, and oftentimes even to God. And second, they have too low of a view about their importance and God's plans and purposes. So he says that in having sober judgment or sound or sober thinking, it means that they will view themselves from God's perspective. That's what he's saying. View yourself as God views you. And that means that you'll not have too high view nor too low a view of yourself. Now, true humility or thinking with sober judgment is one of the most difficult character traits to learn. It is. It is. We, we are all challenged with this. One person uh, described humility like a, a slippery watermelon seed, you know, and you, you get it under your, your, your finger and you think it, you have it captured and then it quickly slips out of your grasp, right? Well, it's such a good picture of that. And, and I've told this story before, but it bears repeating here about um, Dr. Harry Ironside, a preacher and commentator of the Word of God. Uh, he he, he uh, wrote about how he felt that he was not as humble as he should be. And so he went to an old friend of his there in the Chicago area where he ministered and, and asked what he should do about it. And his friend told him that what he should do is go and make a large sandwich board with the gospel written on it and then go downtown Chicago to the business and shopping districts and just spend all day long walking the streets or standing on the corner with that sandwich board uh, with the gospel on it. And, and he did that. And, and at the end of the day, he went to his apartment, but he caught himself thinking, there's probably another, not another person in Chicago that would have done that. I mean, you get the point. You know, seek humility and pride will try to, you know, wiggle in there, right? Uh, clearly, I mean, the tendency to overrate ourselves is the greater problem of the two, but because it's our natural tendency, our sinful, fleshly, natural tendency to, to think highly of ourselves. And, and, and I think it's really the problem of pride that still lingers in us. Even after old man has been crucified with Christ, you know, and we become new creatures in Christ Jesus, it still lingers. It's like it's in our DNA. And, and we are regularly bombarded with the temptation to put ourselves above others, to see ourselves as more important than anyone else. And, and we may have too high a view of ourselves because we kind of bought into the, this age's, you know, thoughts that, that our greatest commitment in life has to be to ourselves because if, if it's not, then how are we even going to help other people? What a lie from the devil. You know, that's, that's pride. And, and consequently, we end up having an overinflated view of our importance, I think, to God and to others. Now, if we're believers, that is. We can think we're just, we're all that to God and others, of course. Now, if you're not a believer, it's just you think you're better than everyone else. But this attitude, uh, by the way, easily uh, invades Christian ministry or Christian ministers. Uh, I was thinking, for example, it's easy for a preacher, like myself, to think that the success of the ministry is dependent on them. You know, if they weren't there and they weren't the speakers they were, then no one would, else would 
you know, be there. And, and, and if they weren't around, the church would just crumble. And for those who give generously to the church, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I weren't there contributing what I do, then the church would probably not exist any longer. And those who are involved in music ministry in a church, such a big deal, particularly in this present age in which we live, uh, they may end up thinking, well, you know, it's really the music that draws and keeps people in a church. So, hey, if it wasn't for us, then, you know, the church would be in sad shape. Uh, and I, I, you just go on with the list of other ministries where this, this kind of thinking can creep in, where people just get too high view of themselves. And then Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't have too high view of yourself. The other problem of thinking too lowly uh, of ourselves or, and undervaluing our importance uh, to God and his purposes and plans also exists. It does. Maybe not as bad, but it does. People have, some people have the mindset that they could never be all that. They couldn't be as good a preacher if they, if they wanted to teach the Word of God or preach the Word of God. They just couldn't do it as well. I, I know what those feelings are like, you know, comparing yourself to other preachers, you know, that, that can be a, a terrible thing to, to feel that way. Or, you know, to be as good a teacher or a Sunday school teacher or life group leader or, or musician or greeter or whatever area of ministry there is in the church. You, you can end up thinking, well, I can't do it as good as anyone else, so why even try? And they may look at their natural talents and, and say, well, God couldn't really use me in any significant way. I don't really have any talents that could be used in any big way. I can't add of anything of value to the church ministry. And so they, they may think they have no talents, no, no abilities, and they begin to talk to themselves saying that they are no use to anyone. That's having too low a view of Yourself, And I think that is included in Paul's thoughts as well. Now, having a renewed mind, verse 2, means that we will think of ourselves as God thinks of us. And how does he think of us? He, he thinks of us as one for whom he died. One for whom he allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that they might be purchased and brought into the family of God. He views us that way. He views us as part of the body of Christ and as one of those who, along with each and every other believer, have graciously been given something, and that is a measure of faith assigned by God, is what our verse tells us. A measure of faith assigned by God. Now, it's unlikely, it's very unlikely that by that statement, a measure of faith assigned by God, that Paul is somehow meaning that to, to, to some God gave a great amount of faith, and to others he didn't give as much faith. You know, Jesus kind of talked about faith that way. And so someone said to him, it's like, increase our faith. And he's like, uh, you only need the faith of a mustard seed, and you could say to this mountain, move, and it would move. It's not, it's not the amount of faith that you have. It's do you have faith and where your faith is put. So I don't think that that's what Paul means. Like, God gave me more faith than he gave you. No, and the reason I, I say that even more 
uh, assuredly is because of the context. The context would indicate that the measure of faith to which he is referring is actually a reference to the spiritual gifts or gifts, plural, that you know, are given to each and every one. That God has assigned to each believer a gift or gifts for the benefit of all, all in the church. So to one, he says, was given the gift of prophecy, and to another was given uh, service, and to another teaching, and to a, another uh, leading, and to another mercy. And, and so this meaning is clear, isn't it? That the measure of faith that God has assigned is a reference to the gift or gifts that God has given to each believer. And, and it's not a reference to how much faith we have, but the gift that he's given us to be used in faithful service to him so that we wouldn't be people missing from action or absent without leave. Now, the illustration that he uses is the body beautiful. I mean, that's an old phrase that was used some time ago in advertising, the body beautiful. Um, and, and Paul uses this illustration of the human body to show that the truly humble believer is one who recognizes certain things, the unity, the diversity, the dependency, and the harmony uh, of the body of Christ or the church and, and his or his or her part in maintaining those things, unity, diversity, dependency, and harmony. And, and he puts it in these words, for as in verses 4 and 5, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So think with me about your own body. It may or may not be a beautiful specimen in your own eyes, but it works beautifully to illustrate what Paul's saying in the exhortation. You have one body, right? I mean, hopefully no one here thinks that you've got more than one. That would just be a little odd, and you might need to send you to some kind of counseling or something. But uh, you have one body, uh, and as you consider your body, you can quickly ascertain this truth. You have many, many members to your body, and by members, parts. You have hands and feet and ears and nose and toes and, oh, that kind of rhymed, didn't it? Uh, nose and toes, you know. So, and, and it all works together. The ankle bone is connected to the whatever bone and the backbone that's all crooked and out of shape is connected to some other bone. And, you know, and my bones, you know, some of them worn down and they had to be replaced by other things besides bones. But you get the point. You have many members that make up one human body. Uh, the parts are different from one another. Um, and each one has its own necessary function to help your body as a whole carry out its necessary functions. So... Your feet are different from your hands, and, and they have a different function. I, I'm glad I don't have to walk out of my house to my garage on my hands, hop in my truck on my hands, and then drive with my feet. That would just be wrong. You know, my hands have a function. My feet have a function. My ears make great listening devices. Sometimes they don't function as good as they should. But they make great listening devices, but they would be terrible to eat with or 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 to play the piano with, 
I'm discounting the phrase, they can play by ear. It's not talking about actually putting ears on the keyboard. It's talking about you can hear a song and then play that song, right? You don't have to have music sitting in front of you. So, you know, each part does its own thing. Now, what if you had an ear in place of your nose? Now, would you look weird because you'd be the only one like that, but what would it be like listening to your food instead of smelling it? Yeah, can't you see yourself listening to your food instead of smelling it? No, the point is so clear, the illustration is so perfect. You have one body, many members, and you need every part of your body for it to function as it's intended to function. So consider how important it is for the many members of your body to work in harmony. There's, I'm throwing that word out personally, in harmony with uh, each other. So stay with me for a minute with an illustration. If your wife here today, and, and you picture yourself uh, giving your husband a big hug and a kiss, no matter how often that actually happens, just picture that. So you, you may want to reach out and hug him, but your arms decide that they don't want to hug that guy who forgot your birthday. No, they'd rather slap him rather than hug him. And, and uh, your lips, you know, are going to rebel as well. They, they don't want to kiss him. They want to give him a piece of your mind for not even getting a card on your anniversary. Let's take a different tact with the illustration. Let's say that you love to play softball. And, and, and the day comes when you're standing at the plate with the opportunity to bring home the winning run. And the pitch comes in, and your arms that's holding the bat refuse to swing the bat at the pitch. And your brain says, what are you doing? What are you doing? We can win the game. No, I don't want to swing. Strike one. Second pitch comes in, and your brain's saying, swing, 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 swing. And your arm's saying, no, 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 no. Strike two. Third pitch comes in, same thing. I absolutely refuse to swing at that pitch, says your arm, strike three. And you're, you're, you're not celebrated as the hero. You're recognized as the goat, which in this case does not mean the greatest of all time. Okay. Of course, that would never happen, right? That would never happen because your body is a unified whole, isn't it? And, and it's made up of many parts that have differing functions that all work together in harmony with one another. So likewise, the body of Christ is a unified whole. And, and though it has many members, those members have to work together in harmony to accomplish what God wants his church to do. However, we'll find it incredibly difficult to fulfill God's purpose for us if there are too many of us that are thinking too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. And, and we certainly can't be doing what God calls us to do if, if we have members of the body who are absent without leave or missing from action. And we have to understand, too, that our presence on a church meeting is not the same thing as our participation in ministry. I mean, presence is nice, 
but it's not the same thing as participating. Merely, uh, when I had my shoulder surgery a few years back, I had a nerve block put in. Uh, they didn't want me to move it around, although they did want me to just kind of, it felt like about a 15 weight hanging from my shoulder, and they wanted me to, you know, kind of get it to swirl around as part of my therapy, and it just felt just wrong. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't lift my hand, I couldn't move it. It, it, it was dead to me. And that, that's what happens when members may be present but not participating. So, uh, it can almost be like dead weight. And the key is not to get rid of the dead weight, the, the key is to start using the arm or the foot or the ear or the eye or whatever part you would be in the body of Christ. So, let me give you two suggestions regarding those who have too high of an opinion of themselves. First is they must realize their limitations, right? They have to realize their limitations. To, to himself, every man, every woman, in a sense, is the most important person in the world. That's that pride aspect. And it always, it always needs much grace to see what other people are and, and to keep a sense of moral moral proportion, that I'm not more important than other people, and so on and so forth. It, it takes that. And the, the truth is that while each believer has at least one spiritual gift, and, and maybe more, no one that we know of possesses all of them. Some people think Paul had most of them, but not all of them. And of course, if, if gifts were part of Jesus' life, he would have had all of them. But Jesus is the one who died to for the gifts to be given uh, to us as, as his uh, disciples. So we have to, we have to recognize our, our limitations. None of us are, quote, all that, right? Second, they, they must realize that they don't have all the gifts because they don't have all the gifts. They are therefore dependent on one another. Right? We are dependent on one another. As, as certain parts of my body rely on other parts of my body to accomplish the things that I do, so each believer as a member of the body of Christ is dependent on others to help him or her accomplish what God wants him or her to do. It's not done by yourself. It takes other members of the body participating with you. Now, let me give two suggestions to help those who may think too lowly of themselves. First, they must realize that they are a member of the universal church and should be a member of the a local church. Universal church, every person in Christ from the time of the you know, crucifixion on or from Pentecost on, and you put your faith in Christ, you become part of the body, the universal body of Christ. And you should be a part of a local body. And the, and the local body is a mere representation of the universal body. And this is a high calling. that God make, uh, makes us members of a body of believers, a family of God, members of his kingdom. However you want to put that, he's given us that responsibility, each and every one. So we have to realize that. that that's an important elevated thing that God has done for us. And second, they need to realize that they are gifted members of uh, uh, the church body. God has given each and every 
child of God. Everyone in Christ, a gift or multiple gifts to carry out ministry in connection with the rest of the church family. This isn't simply talking about natural talents because unbelievers can have all kinds of natural talents. And you may have them too, even as a believer, natural talents. Maybe you're a natural athlete or something like that, or you're a natural you know, gifted speaker or something like that. This isn't talking about natural talents. It's talking about spiritual gifts that were purchased through the blood of Christ to be given to us for the proper working of the body. So Paul could not use a better illustration for his exhortation towards humble service. The truly humble believer will be one who recognizes the importance of unity and diversity and dependency and harmony in the church and will be doing his or her part to bring that about or to maintain it. Now lastly, the application. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because it really is quite clear. How, how, and so the application is, wholehearted ministry, verses 6 through 8. How should it impact us? Well, he describes it, and I'm just going to read the first part of that. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That's the important part of it. I mean, the rest of it is important too. The different gifts that he mentions are important, but the big idea of this exhortation is use the gift that God has given you or the gifts that God has given you. So these verses are where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, or where the, we get down to the nitty-gritty. And basically what Paul's saying in these three verses is that sober thinking about ourselves and our responsibility of ministry in the church to, to promote unity and diversity and dependency and harmony will mean that we will be actively engaging, exercising the gifts that God has given to us. So to put Paul's words into a short form, you can put it this way. Go for it! Go for it. Be, do the best job you can do with what God has given you. And he hasn't given you at all. You're not all that. But be the best that you can be. And this is, you know, the authentic and sincere response to the mercy of God given to us. Ministry that naturally or rightly flows out of a heart of worship. Service that seeks to honor God is a heart heartfelt response to what God has done for us. So a true servant uh, understands and is thankful for the mercy and grace that God has given them and, and, and has the heart that the psalmist describes, Psalm 116, 12. What shall I render for the Lord for all his benefits to me? Faithful, wholehearted, faithful service of the gifts that he's given to us. Now, I'm not going to cover the, the gifts and their meanings. This, this is one of four passages that, that uh, have list of spiritual gifts. And I'm not quite confident that every spiritual gift that God has given is found in those four passages. Some of them are duplicated in some of them. So here's the passages. You can write it down. You can read them and study them. Uh, get an idea. So our text, Romans 12, 3 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the entire chapter talks about spiritual gifts. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, particularly verses 11 through 16, where it talks about 
differing gifts and how it all works together, every joint uh, participating as it should for the proper working of the body. And then 1 Peter 4 also has a list of gifts. So what I would say, instead of covering those gifts, or just make four quick statements. Number one, we should seek to discover and use the gifts that God has given us. That should be clear to us. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 says that, uh, Paul said, now concerning spiritual gifts, brother, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. You should know what they are. And you should know what yours are. And, and Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 14 and 15, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you, uh, Timothy, by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So find out what your gifts are. You can do that in conversation with other people. What do you think my gifts are? Why don't we do a little study together? Maybe two of us could get together and talk about gifts. You tell me what you think mine are, I'll tell you what I think yours are. Let's see if we, you know, we, we can agree on that. And then how would I you know, learn to exercise those? Second thing, all gifts mentioned in the four passages and perhaps others that are not directly mentioned are to be understood as grace gifts. Emphasis on grace. So the word gift that is used in this passage and elsewhere in those other passages is the word, and the root word is charisma. We get the English uh, charismatic or charismata from it. And sadly, that word has often been relegated by many Christians as a, simply referencing a, a few of the spiritual gifts, more spectacular gifts like speaking in tongues or miracles and things like that, but the word itself is a reference to all the gifts. All the gifts are a grace gift given to us by God. We don't deserve the gift. We don't earn the gift. It's not a reward for our service. We could never earn the privilege of serving God in ministry, but His grace allows us to do that. It's a grace gift. Third, we should understand that since God gives each and every believer certain gifts and not all of them, we should concentrate on what we do well, what our gifts are, and not focus on wanting to do what other people have as gifts. Now, that doesn't mean we become self-focused. Connected with that thought is the idea of focusing on finding the way that we contribute to the unity, diversity, dependency, and harmony of the body, in working with all the other gifts for proper working of ministry. And then fourth, we should be giving 100%. I'd love to say 110, you know, 100, it's so common. Give 110%. Well, you really can't give 100%. You can only give 100%. 1,000%. No, you can't give that either. 100%. Give 100% to the use of your gifts. And it's worth noting that. That is wholehearted ministry for the Lord, right? You know, there are all kinds of people who get very excited, you know, kind of psyched up when it's coming around fishing season. 
can't wait to get out on the river and fish, or hunting season if you're a hunter, or the, the craft fair season, oh man, can't wait for the craft fair to, you know, to come around, or you know, whatever your you know, thing that really gets you psyched up, maybe it's football season, oh yeah, Monday night football again, woohoo, Super Bowl, can't wait, <laughs> you know, it's so exciting, and they spend so much time and energy focusing on what they like, I wonder, do we give that kind of energy and passion and wholeheartedness to using the gifts that God has given to us? We should. Carol and I were, uh, along with uh, Jim and, and Tracy, were, we didn't go together, but we ended up at the same concert last night down at the pack, uh, Fiddler and her band. And one of the things that Carol and I talked at, at length after the concert was the energy, the, the enthusiasm that the, the, the performers had and the energy and the enthusiasm in the crowd was uh, incredible as well and I thought wouldn't it be that way wouldn't it be that great if I were to demonstrate every time I were to get up here that kind of enthusiasm and and excitement is like man I can hardly wait to get up and share the truth Or, or maybe your gift is serving I can't wait to get there and set up the tables and chairs for other people to use or I can't wait to you know, cook the food for people to enjoy after it, or I can't wait to teach a Sunday school class. Oh man, that's so exciting to me. If Shouldn't we be that excited about that if we're going to get that excited about all those other things? Well, I, I know what I say to that. So. so I just end with the question again. Are you absent without leave? Are you, are you kind of missing from action? If you are, please adjust, adjust. Get right with the Lord on this. Repent of that, because that just means that you're self-focused. It means that your whole concentration is on yourself and not on Christ or his church. And if you are, be encouraged. Be encouraged of what God has graciously given you to carry out his work, because we're the body of Christ. It's his body and his work. Let's be faithful servants in, in that body to the glory of his name. So Lord, thanks for this passage. Thanks for the truth that you gave your church through the Apostle Paul. Help us to live in light of it as we should. Thanks for the food we're going to eat our fellowship around it as well. Praise be to your glorious name. Amen.